Imagine for just one moment that you had the opportunity to sit in a question and answer session with none other than the Apostle Paul himself. Now we know that that's not possible, as profitable as that would be to each one of us. But what if you could receive the recording of a question and answer session that happened with the Apostle Paul? Again, we would give everything to have that recording and to listen to the questions and then the answers coming from the mouth of Paul, but we know again that that's not possible. But what we do have and what we can enjoy is the transcript of a question and answer session that the Apostle Paul had with the Corinthian church in the days after it was first founded by him. From chapter 7 all the way through the end of the book, that's what is recorded before us in 1 Corinthians. It's questions that the Corinthians had for Paul concerning issues that they were dealing with and things that were important to them that they didn't know uh, enough about. And so they sent a message to him and they asked certain questions and Paul answers them one by one, beginning in chapter 7 with their questions concerning the subject of marriage. Now, last week we we kind of prefaced this chapter with a topical message on the subject of marriage that addressed the reason why God created marriage in the first place. And again, that's a subject that goes way deeper than we probably could explore uh, in 10 Bible studies or even you know, more than that. But to, 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 to try to encapsulate it into its uh, you know, broad brush spectrum of what it is, we looked at it and we saw that God created marriage for the purpose of relationship, for the purpose of reflecting His image in the world and in the universe, for the purpose of refinement and the change that takes place in us and learning how to deal with another person on that level. And then finally, uh, the opportunity that marriage affords each one of us to understand and also to give and to receive agape love, which is the highest form of love that God created. And so that's what we kind of looked at last week to lay a foundation, if you would, to hear what Paul would have to say this week in the text itself concerning some of the issues that surround our marriage relationships. Now, the chapter really breaks down into five sections, if you would, uh, that address different um, subtopics under this broad arena of marriage. The first that Paul will get into in the very beginning is the proper way uh, to build a marriage or to go into a marriage. And then he'll go from there and he'll get into the issue of the needs that each person has within that marriage relationship. Then he'll go into the question of, is marriage for everyone? Is it always God's will for everyone to get married? Uh, and then fourthly, what about divorce and the divorced? And then number five uh, speaks to everyone and that concerns our priorities as it relates to our relationships, but really as it relates to everything, um, keeping things in their proper perspective and in their proper context. Now, um, I would say a fraction of the time that I prepare a Bible study, uh, I listen to other sermons, people that um, ha have gone before, older, sometimes people that have already gone to heaven, uh, other teachings in the text that I'm in, 
to hear what people have to say. And I do that uh, under the circumstances that, you know, I really have no idea uh, under heaven what this text is all about, and I could use a little insight. Um, other times, it's that the topics are so, um, I don't want to know, I don't know, controversial, or there's something in it where just to hear how far or how bold someone was willing to go with a particular text. And here's what I discovered this week in, in listening to a few older uh, and much wiser voices uh, on this subject and on this text. What I discovered is this, is that most um, preachers, teachers, pastors, uh, when they get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what they will do is that they will read the verses, they will give a very light and simple explanation of what it says, and then they'll move on to chapter 8. <laughs> and, uh, um, or, the, or, you know, maybe spin off in a certain way or a certain direction and kind of say some things that relate to it, but not really really deal with what exactly is being said in the thing. And so as I contemplated uh, our venture through this chapter, I thought to myself, okay, I am old enough to have a little bit, and I say that with emphasis, of understanding concerning some of these things. But I am also young enough and foolish enough to try to punch this thing right in the face. And I'm also wise enough to know that next time I teach this chapter, if that ever happens, I'll probably just read the verses, give a little light explanation, and then move on to chapter 8. Now, the reason why I say that is because some of the things that are dealt with within this chapter um, have the potential and the ability to bring a whole lot of healing, a whole lot of help, and a whole lot of encouragement uh, to a marriage um, that maybe isn't even troubled necessarily, but isn't experiencing all that it could. But at the same time, it also has the potential to bring a whole lot of hurt, to scrape a whole lot of scars, and to bring a whole lot of discouragement to people that have had uh, other experiences that maybe are not so positive within their marriage. And that is the risk that is run in uh, going through a chapter like this and really digging into a little bit some of the things that are uh, brought up within it. Now, um, here's what I want to say to those of you tonight that may find yourselves listening to the things shared tonight and you feel a little bit of pain or a little bit of discomfort uh, or you feel some scars being rubbed. I will say this to you. So we're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about things that are real, things that, uh, um, that, that are issues that we deal with. Here's what I want you to know, is that the reason why God talks to us in the Bible about these things, about what's proper and right, is never for the sake of showing something in our face that we did wrong and saying, you idiot, if you had only done it this way. That's never God's intent in doing something. If we were silent for the sake of not rubbing scars and wounds, then we would have to ignore the life that God lays out before us and how all of that works. And so the Bible doesn't do that, and we can't do that. So what's the point then? Why does God do it? What will he do here tonight? Here's what it is. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said these words, so profound and so helpful. He said, what I do is that I forget the things which are behind, and I press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so the reason why God tells us these things is not to shine a light upon the errors of our past, but rather to give us hope for the future going forward. We cannot change the things that we have done 
All of us in this room, the speaker included, has done things, I've said things, I've made huge mistakes in my life and in my marriage. And I can't change those things. You cannot unscramble eggs, as Pastor Mike says sometimes, uh, once they've been scrambled. But what I can do is I can hold my life up before the Lord, and I can say, God, you have the unique, you only have the ability to cleanse what I have defiled and to fix or heal what I have broken or wounded. And that's always the heart of God in anything that he does and anything that's before us within our lives. And so it's with that uh, context and with that fear, really, uh, that we, we look at these things and, and that we punch them in the face. It's not for the purpose of being uh, glib or, um, or creative. It's for the purpose of saying, God, how do these things work and what is your purpose in designing them uh, in all of it. And so God is going to talk to us about that this week. He begins at the very beginning of the chapter by talking to us about uh, the proper way. And so if you look at verse 1 with me in chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, the questions that they had for Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, which is sexual contact outside of the marriage covenant, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. He doesn't say let all of you get married. He actually in there very um, intentionally defines what marriage is by saying let every uh, woman have man every, have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Uh, covenant. Now, again, I said this last week, I'll, I'll say it and move on, but what was the question that they asked Paul? We don't know. But it could have been, the question could have been, in light of the problem of fornication that exists not only in Corinth, but in all the world, uh, and the temptation and the level of temptation that exists in the arena of sexuality, would it be better for a man or for a woman to just remain celibate? especially in the context of the Christian life? Is that something that, that would be beneficial to us, something that God would want for us? And so what Paul says in re reply to that right off the bat is that he says that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He doesn't say it's better for a man. It's permissible for a man uh, to embrace and, and take upon him that form of lifestyle. He's going to say that at least three times as we move throughout the chapter, never saying that a person is more spiritual for it, or they, they're more favored by God because of it. He, he just says that that is an option uh, that you have in the Lord if you're gifted in that way. But, but really what he's saying to them, uh, really underneath all of that, is that any physical contact with a member of the opposite sex that is rooted in or finds its reason in eros or erotic form of love or flirtation or for the sake of arousing the senses, something that would lead down a path that would end in sexual expression, and he calls that fornication. And he says that there should be no contact between men and women that are not married that has that type of flavor uh, in it at all. That eros or erotic love is something that is restricted to marriage proper. That that's the place that God intended to be. Now, it has to be said at this point, um, because some, some of us might get squirmish in a Bible study that touches this issue, because I just said Bible study and sex in the same sentence. 
It's important for us to understand that God created sex. That he's the one that drew up the blueprint. He's the one that designed it. He thought it up. He's aware of it. He knows all of its variables. He invented all of its variables. The hormones involved. The drives that are involved. Along with their strength. He created the processes and the effects. Even the difficulty of the dynamic that is presented by sex in marriage. All of it is created and ordained by God for our pleasure. Yes, I said that because the Bible says it. And for his glory and as, a, as an expression um, within his created order of things. Sex in God's way is sanctified. It's holy. It's a beautiful thing. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says that, the mar- that marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled. So within the context and the confines of biblical, monogamous, covenantal marriage, sex is not only permissible, it is, it is there as a gift from God, and it is impossible for that marriage bed then to be defiled. It's there for your enjoyment, for your exploration, for your pleasure. God gave it. I mean, the very fact that Paul says in verses 1 and 2, to avoid fornication, tells us that the purpose of sex goes way beyond just that of procreation. That there's more reasons for it than just to have children. And so God gave to the race the gift of sex, but he gave the gift of sex to the human race in the confines of marriage. That is where its benefit and its blessing is found. And outside of that, it's a disaster, and it ruins lives, and it ruins souls. Sex outside of marriage takes the essence and the beauty of what a soul is designed to be united with one other person and it squanders it, extracting the pleasure from the experience but then wasting the rest of what God designed that expression and that experience to be. And so notice what he says there. He says that to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own Husband, that within marriage it's permissible, but outside of marriage it's considered, listen, fornication. Fornication is a sin. Now with any sin, sin is not bad because God says no. God says no because the sin is bad. Meaning that there's always going to be consequences anytime we neglect God's way and order. And that's what we're talking about here is God's way and order in which a marriage is built. And we put what we want or what we think before that or in front of that. We're always going to experience consequences of it. Now, I know someone here is going to say, now, wait a minute. What about the instance or the case where it's your spouse and you know you're going to get married, and you're maybe only you know a few weeks away from that, or a few months away from that, and you uh, y- you know you say, well, okay, we're together. God sees it. We're married in His eyes. We don't have the piece of paper yet. He hasn't said, I pronounce you man and wife yet. But what about? And then we get married and we go on. In that case, certainly there there there's minimal consequences at best. No, no, no. Anytime we sidestep or circumvent God's way and go around it, there are always consequences to that. I think the number one problem that sex before marriage, even in a couple that gets married, presents is that it brings upon a marriage irrevocable uh, trust issues. And, that, and that, that's, this is how that works. 
is that, you know, a couple will, will compromise in that way. And then they'll come to the altar and they'll get married. And immediately after the marriage is sealed, there's something that happens in the heart of both the man and the woman wherein they look at the other partner and they say, now, wait a minute. I'm supposed to trust you. I'm supposed to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust you every day of my life while you go to the office or while that you're here without me or where you are, wherever you are, or even maybe you're on the mission field or you're away. I'm going to trust you. And the way of God and the command of God to abstain and to wait wasn't important enough to you before the marriage covenant. How can I know with assurance in my heart that you're going to be trustworthy after the marriage covenant is now secured and signed. And that's a very important realization for us to consider. If a woman can look at a man who she's engaged to, and she can look at him and say, he honored God above his own desires before we were married, I'm certain that he will honor God above his desires after we are married. What about the question mark that comes in after the fact, should he not honor God above his desires and vice versa? And so there are problems that come into a marriage. One pastor, drawing from his vast experiences uh, in counseling married couples over the years, um, said he he saw a pattern uh, in couples that were sexually active before marriage, um, wherein as soon as the marriage uh, was, was ratified and completed, the woman had a tendency to take the reins of leadership within the house. Is that within her, there was an insecurity that the man was trustworthy enough to to, to rule the household well, and she would rather place her security in her own hands than yield to his because he wasn't willing to honor God in that way before. And all of that without conscious thought. It's just something that happens internally, unspeakably, when that situation uh, comes. If a marriage is only a piece of paper in the mind of those that are approaching the marriage altar before the marriage, then the marriage will only be a piece of paper in the mind of those that are in marriage after that piece of paper is signed. And marriage is much, much more than a piece of paper. And so what's the point? The point is this. Honor God in the way that you lead your life up to the time that you're married. Keep the fire in the fireplace. And the fireplace is the marriage bed. Honor him. Order is important to God, and it's important to marriage. Now, Paul moves on from there, and he begins now to discuss uh, the needs that uh, um, uh, uh, two partners, two people in a marriage relationship have. He says in verse 3, he says, Let the husband render or give unto the wife due benevolence. Benevolence is actually a very big King James Old English word that simply means what is his duty to give. And so Paul is very simply saying here, let the husband give to the wife what it is his duty to give to his wife. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Now let's pause right there before we uh, read the attaching verse to it, because there's a couple things I want to point out to you before Paul gives it the context that he does in verse 4. It's important this. Give what is your duty to give. That's what Paul's essentially saying. Now, he does not, in this verse, define what that duty is. 
now most often it is taught and associated with the sexual needs that a man and a woman have in their respective uh, um, levels of, of, of desire or drive or whatever it might be. But before we go immediately there, which we will when we get into the next verse, it's important that we understand here that not everyone has their need when they're looking at their spouse and what they need from their spouse in the context of the sexual union. There are people that give and receive love in other ways than simply the act of sexual intercourse. And those, uh, giving, those ways in which people give and receive love are just as important, and those needs that that person has that are outside of the context of sex are just as important as uh, the sexual need is that a person might have within marriage. Um, there's a book, I think it's uh, Gary Chapman is the author, he wrote, and it's called The Love Languages. And he basically uh, analyzed however many thousands of human beings and, uh, you know, kind of surveyed the way that they give and receive love. And he, he summarized the human um, love whatever, into five basic uh, categories. And they are, as he describes them, quality time, uh, giving gifts, acts of service, encouraging words, and, and then lastly, uh, physical touch or what we would uh, consider the sexual interaction. And the point that he makes within it is that uh, there are some people that the way that they receive love, and so the way that they need to be loved, is that they need to be loved by the quality time that we spend with them as a, as a husband or as a wife. Others by the giving of gifts, the thoughtfulness that's attached to that. Others by acts of service, unsolicited, but yet given just the same. Others through encouraging words, and then still others uh, through the physical act of things that take place within uh, the marriage. I heard it um, one way. There was a, a couple, and this was a true story as it was told to me, though I never met these people, that uh, on their wedding um, day, after they were married, the woman uh, came to the man and she said to him, um, she said, I promise to you this. I don't know if she said it in her vows or if she just said it to him one-on-one -on -one after the fact, but she said, I promise you this, is that I will excel and abound in the room of your choice within our house, but only one. You choose which one it is. I, it could be the kitchen. It could be the nursery with the children. It could be the rec room where we hang out. It could be the office. It could be the cleaning closet. Or it could be the bedroom. But you choose which room you want me to excel in and then don't expect much in any of the others. <laughs> and his reply was, honey, I'll take you in any of those places. <laughs> Never mind, that went right over. <laughs> his choice was was the bedroom. At least that's how it went in, in the story, uh, the whole thing. But, 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 but by and large, that's essentially what the concept of that is, is that she was asking him the question, where do you receive love the best? How can I love you the best? And that's what I will give myself to for you to the best of my ability. And so when the Apostle Paul looks at the uh, you and I, essentially, and he says, husbands, and he starts, by the way, with husbands rendering to the wife. He doesn't start with wives rendered to the husbands. He says, husbands, figure out the way in which your wife receives love and the things that she needs in order to feel that love, and then give it to her. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And then he gives it to the wives as well. He says, likewise, wives, 
you figure out how it is that your husband responds and how he receives love, and then you give to him love that he needs in that way. Now, here's, the, here's where it gets, gets a little bit uh, issuey, and that's this, is that in our human nature, we have the tendency to give love in the way that we receive love. In other words, if something blesses us or if something is important to us, then we think that by doing those things to the person that we're married to or loving them in that way, that that's going to be what they receive. And it doesn't always work that way. In fact, it seldom works that way. And so a person can be with all of their intention loving the other person and the other person can be looking at that person and not receiving uh, love or much love or the right kind of love that makes them feel secure within the marriage. And so the idea and the challenge that we face as married people or as those that will be married maybe at some point is not loving people in the way that makes sense to us but figuring out how that person receives love and then giving it to them in that. Paul calls it rendering due benevolence to them. Show love in the room where they want it. Figure that room out and then become an expert within that room. Now Paul goes on from there and he brings it into the singular context of the sexual part of marriage in verse 4. Notice what he says. He says, The wife does not have power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. In other words, you make a mutual decision that for a season that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. And so the context that Paul moves into after the generic rendering or giving of what is your duty to give, now he brings it into the context of the sexual uh, interaction. And that's important as it relates to marriage. And here's why. And it's a reason why sex is sanctified and so important within a marriage. is Because listen, Sex is the singular thing that you can give to your spouse that they can get in no other place but from you and, and vice versa. Now, each one of us pours ourselves into others in a thousand different ways. We pour ourselves into our kids. We pour ourselves into the people we work with. We pour ourselves into our Christian brothers and sisters through the things that we do, the way that we pray, the way that we serve, the needs that we respond to. But there is one thing that we can do for our spouse that we do for no one else at all. And so for that reason, among many others, that is a very sanctified and holy and, and important part of the marriage. In that eros love, the erotic love, we give ourselves to our spouse by being exclusively theirs. Now that becomes a major issue within marriage. And here are the reasons why sex is such an issue. When I say issue, there's a little bit of a negative slant there because it becomes an issue in marriage. Number one is this, is that because the sex drive is an internal God-given drive. And I, I believe probably every one of us in here, in this room, knows exactly what that means without any explanation at all. Uh, we understand the, the, that drive. And that drive can cause emotional pain. It can cause mental pain. It can cause physical pain. Paul's going to talk about those that burn a little bit later on in the chapter, giving to it that physical uh, uh, sense in the thing. And so there's a God-given drive 
And it's God-given drive that's in every single one of us. And now what God has done in his wisdom, and I don't know why, is that he has ordained that there is one way and there is one person in our lives that can satisfy that need or help that drive and, and, and serve it. And that's it. That's it. There, you can't even satisfy that need yourself in, in God's uh, way. And it, there is one person, and it's not you, that can satisfy that drive. Now, think about it. If you're hungry, you have a hunger drive, right? And you can satisfy that drive in a thousand ways. You could go buy prepared food, or you could make it yourself. You can uh, order out. You can take in. You can have someone cook a meal for you. You can share it in a restaurant. You can eat a snack. You could open up the... I mean, there's a thousand things. Someone could give it to you, or you could, you know, get it... Any way that you want, you could could eat. You can satisfy, and and you can meet that need that you have uh, for yourself uh, in it. And, And it's interesting. I mean, we all can relate to a food drive, can't we? I mean, we think about food all the time, don't we? And we think about it. We think about we eat. As soon as we're done eating, what do we start thinking about like five minutes later? We start thinking about what else I can eat. We just finished eating and we see food sitting out. We go, wow, there's some food. You know, and we, and we look at the food. And, and, and we, we think about food in so many different ways. I mean, we want to redress the same food a thousand different ways and just taste it just a little bit different. We want to eat every place. We, we don't restrict. We want to eat in the car. We want to eat in our home. We want to eat everywhere. We'll, we'll eat in the food court. I'll eat at the mall. I'll eat at the restaurant. I want to eat at that restaurant because I want to know what it's like to eat in that setting with those things on the wall. I want to eat. And we, we can, we do, we will go to the store, right? And we will buy food according to the way that it is dressed, what it looks like, right? They're, they're the same price. They're the same ingredients and they're the same thing. But the way that food is dressed, I'll pay more for it because I want to eat that food. I want to know what it's like to eat it when it's wrapped that way. You know, and, and, and like food, it's just food. That's what it is. Okay, now, there's a God-given drive that every one of us has to some degree in this same arena with one way, one way that that drive can be satisfied. And that is through your Christian spouse serving you to meet that need. You can't even meet it yourself. God's wisdom is in that somewhere, isn't it? He's got to have a purpose beyond just the main or the the simple thing in designing things that way. Now, here's where it gets even more issuey. Is that very seldom, very still crowd here tonight, everybody's listening. (laughs) Very seldom does it happen that both the male partner in the relationship and the female partner in the relationship are driven equally. There is almost always an imbalance in the level of need within that marriage relationship. Now, I know that most of us are thinking that, well, this is the man's thing, okay? Not so. I have found in the conversations that I have had and in the counseling that I have done that it divides about a two-thirds line. And yes, two-thirds of the time, it is the male in the relationship that is the more highly driven half of that marriage covenant. But in about a third, and that's a lot, 33 out of every 100 marriages, it's not the man, it's the woman who has the higher drive. 
And that's where now there's an issue that comes in, into the marriage, and this issue of sex becomes uh, a problem. What's the problem? He says it in verse 5. He says, defraud. Do you see that word defraud right there? I don't know what translation you're, you're using, but whatever word is used right there, I want you to circle it, and somewhere right near it, write the words, use for your advantage. That's what that word means, to use for your advantage. And here's what happens in a marriage where there's an imbalance in that uh, level of drive between the man and the woman, is that the, the lower drive partner in that relationship can figure out and use the higher drive's drive as a means of uh, leveraging, controlling, <laughs> getting their way, imposing their will upon that person, and bringing them into a place of surrender, especially in a Christian marriage where the man is surrendered to God's way and he's not going to go outside to have uh, that need met in any way. Um, now, when that happens, when sex is withheld and used for leverage, given with reluctance and all those types of things, what that creates in the partner that is defrauded is it creates insecurity. It creates frustration, emotional numbness. It creates emotional self-preservation. It creates an internal bitterness, a shutting down. And then that begins a cycle of mutual uh, uh, resentment in a marriage that begins to break it down. Imagine for just a moment with me that um, you are a human being, and as, every, as human beings, every one of us has a need for water. We all, we all need to drink water when we get thirsty. But imagine for just a moment that there was only one person on the whole planet that you could get water from, that whenever you needed a drink of water to satisfy a thirst that you have, you had to get water from this person. And then imagine that person knows that they're the only person, and when you come and you need water, they say, I ain't giving you water. And you go, well, now what in the world am I going to do? Now, if that were to happen to you, you would begin to become very creative about the way and very careful also about the way that you ask for water. It would be very easy for your behavior to now be modified because you know that you have a need for water. And so now you're being controlled by a drive that you have, a need that you have, that there's only one other person uh, that can meet that need. And it can become a source of, of tyranny, outright tyranny within a marriage when uh, uh, sex is withheld on the part of one over another. And so what is the challenge that this presents to us as husbands and wives in the context of marriage today? It means this, is that if you're the person that's the higher drive half of your marriage uh, and, and you are the one, you're ready all the time, you want it, you're thinking right now, you know, you're ready. This is a great place to enjoy a meal. You know, if that's you here tonight, here's the challenge for you, is that you need to come to terms with the fact that not everyone is equally created in this, and that it is your responsibility to understand that the other half of the partnership doesn't know what it's like to feel what you're feeling in this thing, and you must fight temptation, and that temptation is the temptation of uh, um, looking for water in other places and, uh, you know, all of those other temptations that come with it and, and endure with, with much prayer. Now, if you're the lower drive person here tonight, you're the one that doesn't need it, you don't understand uh, the person that does, it doesn't make sense to you, you think they're from another planet, uh, the challenge for you, what Paul is asking of you, and, and of course by the Spirit of God, is to embrace something 
that you don't necessarily understand and have compassion and find joy in the power that you have to serve your spouse in it. And so what God's created in creating the marriage bed with these dynamics and with its restrictions is that he's created a workshop wherein two people must get to know each other, must serve each other, and love each other. And, listen, there's a bonus here if you're the high-drive person in this. And here's what that bonus is, is that you, more so than the lower-drive person, listen, have an opportunity to experience what it's like to be God who is passionately desiring intimacy with his people, and they have no interest in giving that to him at all. Think about it. What is the thing that drives the heart of God as it concerns his relationship with us? He wants us near him. Now, it's not sexual, but it's intimate. It's actually more intimate than sex is. It's more enjoyable. It's more in a, in a different context, in a different way. It's what God wants from every single one of us. And so often, we're the low-drive person. We're always the low-drive person in that relationship, aren't we? I mean, God says, would you seek me? Come away early in the morning. Spend time in my presence. Let me wash you in the water of my word. And we say, yeah, yeah, God, I, uh, I got a headache today. I, I'm, I'm tired. God, I, I'm just not hungry. I, it's not in me. God, I don't know. I don't, it's just not there. You know, I know you want to. And God, I want to too. I really do, but I just can't. You know? And listen, that's what it feels like to be God. And God's giving you a unique opportunity to feel that and to experience it in the thing, and that will have uh, certain um, positive things that will come out in our lives. Now, understand this. Let's broaden, uh, pull back a little bit and zoom out. As it concerns any need that we would have, take it back now. It's not just the sex need, but any need that you have. The Apostle Paul tells us in these verses, listen carefully, how to make your spouse feel the greatest love that it is possible for you to make your spouse feel. Here's how that is. Give yourself to their need, whatever it is. He says, give what is in your power or what it is that your power is to give. Give it, whatever it is. If your spouse needs quality time, give it to them. If they need encouraging words, give it to them. Whatever it is that they need in order for them to feel secure and loved, you become an expert in that and give it to them, even if that something is sex and you don't understand it and you don't uh, do it. You give it to them. Now, what does it mean to give? Because notice he doesn't say offer yourself. He doesn't say avail yourself. He doesn't say sympathize with their need and try to come up with something. He says give. Now, every one of us in here has received a gift, haven't we before? There are two different ways that you can give and receive a gift. You can give and receive a gift in reluctance, or you can give and receive a gift with hilarity. Here's what that looks like. Someone comes up to you, right, and they say to you, hey, um, <clears throat> you know, this, uh, this trinket that I have, this is, this is really important to me, and it's been in my family, and, you know, I was thinking about you while I was looking at it the other day, and, I guess I want you to have it. Now, you've just been offered a gift, haven't you? How do you feel? You're like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I like it, but I don't want to take it because I'm not convinced that you want to give it. You're kind of giving it, but you're not really giving it. You're giving it, but you're, you're offering it, but you're not really. Now, 
other side. Someone comes to you and they shove something at you. And they say, here, this is yours. This is from, this is yours. I'm giving this to you. And you know what it's like. Someone giving you a gift card or they're giving you, you know, an appliance. They're, they're doing something for you that's so over and above what you could ever expect or hope from that person. And they're giving it to you, but they're giving it to you in such a way that from the moment they first approached you, they came on in such a way that it's already yours. It's not, there's no debate back and forth. There's no, are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I want you. Are you sure? I don't, I know I couldn't, I couldn't take that. You, you know that that argument is never going to happen because they have already released it. It's gone in their mind. It is in your possession. That's what it means to give. So when it talks about giving love to your spouse in the way that they receive it, don't wait to be asked because I mean, really, if you, if you have to ask, if you ask someone for something that you want, even if it's that glass of water that you can only get from the person, and you say, hey, you know, I'd really love a glass of water. I'm a little thirsty today. And they go, oh. you just had water. Can't you make it till morning without water? You know, what, now, now really, think about it. How do you feel as the one who wants the water? Well, now I don't want the water. You, can, you, can, you know what, keep the water. I'll wait. I'll wait. No, no. Have the water. Have the water. I'm rendering. I'm rendering. I'm giving you the water. No, no t- keep the water. I don't want the water. <laughs> you can, uh, w- the, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not going to dehydrate. You know, you see what happens there. But when there's hilarity in giving, you know that the need is there, that that person has that need for encouraging words, for gifts that are unsolicited, thoughtfulness, taking care of needs or whatever that need, whatever it is, you know that it's there, don't wait to be asked. Do it. Give. Render. And in the process of doing that, what you're doing is that you are loving that person in the way that they receive love, even if it's not the way that you receive love. You're making them feel safe. You're making them feel secure. You're making them feel blessed and loved. You're giving to them according to their need. You're ministering to the need that they have. That's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging and saying in it. You say, well, what about when it just is not in me to do that? I'm not an encourager. I can't. It is so hard for me to just come up with encouraging words. Or I'm just not interested in that water. You know, uh, how do I do that? Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are to put on Jesus Christ. And there are times in this Christian life that we have to put on something that we ourselves are not in our natural selves. In Galatians 3.27, the apostle said, put on Jesus Christ. I am not Christ. In my nature, I don't reflect him at all, but I'm commanded to put on Christ. In Ephesians 4.24, he says, put on the new man, meaning that it's not something that's according to my nature. It's something that must come from somewhere else, but I'm to put it on. He says it again in Colossians 3, verse 10. He goes on in Colossians 3, 12 to say, put on hearts, bowels means hearts, hearts of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and patience. And then he goes on in the very next verse, which won't come up on the screen, to say, forbearing, meaning that you're bearing with some need that someone has that you don't understand. And then in Colossians 3.14, he says, above all these things, put on love. And so when you give according to a need that your spouse has, even if it's not what you're feeling, you're putting on 
Christ and you're putting on his love for the sake of making another person feel loved. And that, listen, will make an explosive joy and happiness within a marriage. That's how it works. Taking care of the needs that someone else has and putting them above your own. One more thing on this before we move on. This verse, as it has been taught in certain times and ways, is not permission to demand your conjugal rights from your spouse. Well, the Bible says, render due benevolence. And so it's my right, you are, that's not what it's saying. What it is saying, what it is, it's an exhortation to give them away. It's not demand your rights, it's give your rights away. It's not what's yours is mine, it's what's mine is yours. And this is where the glory of refinement and agape happen and to refuse to, 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 to do what God says is to forfeit our own blessing and to thrust a thorn into your spouse and into your marriage. And Paul moves on in, uh, in verses 6 through 9 then to talk to uh, three groups of people. He's going to talk to the unmarried, which would be the divorced or the widowed, people that had been married at some point and no longer are. And then he's going to talk to the married people. And then he's going to talk to virgins or those that uh, never were married. And so he goes on in verse 6 and he says, But I speak this by permission and not by commandment. That is what I'm about to say. Um, it isn't necessarily a command from God to build a doctrine on, but I'm speaking it with his permission, meaning that uh, it's allowable, but don't try to say that this is the way it must be. He says, For I would that all men were even as I myself. And Paul was single when he wrote it. And so he's saying, I'm a celibate man. I'm living in this way of not having a spouse. And he says, I would like it if all men were living in this way. But, he says, every man has his proper gift from God, one after this manner and another after that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 that there were some people that were eunuchs, meaning that they would remain single because they were castrated by men. He said there are other people that are eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. And then Jesus said to him who can receive it, let him receive it. In other words, there is a gift of God that he gives to some people that is the power to remain single for the sake of serving his kingdom. You say, well, how do I know if that's a calling that God has placed upon my life? Well, he answers the question. He says in verse 8, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, then let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. In other words, if you're a person that's burning with desire, sexual desire, then you don't have the gift of celibacy and you shouldn't seek to lead a single life. Um, I heard the story about a group of men about 40 or 50 years ago that had all gotten saved in a particular locale uh, in their teenage years and they formed a brotherhood, a fraternity, and they called themselves Bachelors to the Rapture. And they had taken this vow of uh, chastity that they were going to give themselves perfectly to kingdom living. And they did that for a little while, and now every one of them is married. <laughs> and that didn't last. They didn't have the gift. If you have the gift, use it. Uh, if you don't, don't worry about it. Get married. He says, and unto the... Oh, and by the way, listen. If you don't have that gift, and you're here tonight and you're single, I want you to rest assured of this, is that God has someone for you. I don't know where that person is. I don't know when they're gonna, God's going to bring them. But if he hasn't given you that gift, he's, he, there's a reason why not. And there is someone. So pray for that someone. 
Ask God to prepare you for the time that you're going to meet that person. Pray for them, that God would keep them holy, that they would be sanct, that they would be pure and ready to be in a relationship with you. And when the time is right, God will bring you two together, and you'll see that relationship blessed by God. He says, unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. So this is, this is from God, not from Paul. And by the way, when Paul says that, it doesn't mean that we have the right to say it's not inspired scripture. It's in the Bible. It's all from God. He says, I say, but not the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. And so what Paul says to those now that are married, moving from the unmarried to now those that are married, is he's saying that do not divorce one another. And he says that's the explicit command, not of him. This is an opinion. This isn't what would be best. He says this is from the Lord. He says don't divorce. In Malachi chapter, I forgot what chapter it is. In Malachi, God says very, very plainly and clearly and loudly, he says, I hate divorce. God hates divorce because of what it does to the people that are involved in it, both the, 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 the partners in the marriage, also the family that's affected, the society that's affected. The ripples of divorce are far-reaching, and God says, I absolutely hate it, and that my covenantal design for marriage is that you would stay together until death do you part. Now, there are two reasons the Bible says that God suffers, that's the word it uses, divorce, meaning that he allows it to take place. Number one is the hardness of heart. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses wrote, a man can write his woman a bill of divorcement. In other words, your heart is so hardened against the will of God for your life and, and of, doing, of staying in there and letting him work his work through the struggles in your marriage and your heart has become so hard that you're just quitting God's best for your life. And if you do that, God will tolerate it. He doesn't perm it's not permissible, but it's tolerated. I mean, he's not going to take away your salvation in that thing. But here's the problem, is that if you do that, at some point, you still have to have God do a work within your heart and within your life. And he's going to bring to bear upon your life the same degree of difficulty that you're experiencing in your marriage in another way, because he's going to finish what it is that he began. And so you're not going to get away from it because you divorced because of hardness of heart. The other reason that the Bible gives that is legitimate grounds for divorce, permissible by God, is when there's adultery within the relationship. That can kill a marriage, and God knows that. And so when there is that dynamic within a marriage, God says in that case there is a, a, a permissible grounds for divorce. God says this, and here's the counsel that he gives in verses 10 and 11. He says, if divorce is on your mind, here are your options if you want divorce. If you want to be divorced and in the will of God, then you must be divorced and remain single. That you're not to remarry after it is that you have been divorced. Why? Here's why. Because God is setting before you the ultimatum is that divorce and remarriage is not an option. Meaning that you can't just say, well, I'm going to trade this in for a new model or a better situation. If you absolutely cannot endure the situation that you're in and you leave it, then you're choosing to live a single life for the rest of your life. And if someone who wants to be in the will of God can hear that, they'll say, ah, no, maybe it's not that bad. 
you know, the situation that I'm in. If that's what's on the other side of it, maybe we can work through these issues. The other option is to become reconciled to your husband. Sometimes that separation that happens will cause a person to say, you know what, right in the thick of things, it got a little intense. There were some times uh, where, where things were heavy, there was financial pressure, there was uh, kids involved, there was all kinds of chaos. But moving back from that just a little bit, I realized that that situation that I was in was the best situation. And then Paul says, be reconciled now to your husband or to your wife, whatever it is. But divorce should not be in the vocabulary of the Christian. Now again, I know I'm painting with a broom. And as many marriages are represented in this room, that's how many different scenarios there are. And there are so many complicated things that surround our relationships and our lives. And there's so much that we must go before the Lord ourselves with and say, God, what is your will for my life concerning these things? Let's stop there for tonight because uh, um, we're just going to breeze through otherwise and we're out of time. We'll pick up in verse 12 as we pick up uh, with our study here next week. But let me offer you this challenge uh, in light of what we have heard tonight as the musicians come forward. The challenge is this. Do not accept the status quo within your marriage. Meaning that whatever state you find your marriage to be in here tonight, don't say that's good enough. If it's bad, obviously you want it to be better. But if you say it's good then go before Jesus and say, God, where in my life can I be a part of making this relationship a greater expression of what you've designed and what you've wanted? I dare you tonight to get into the world of your spouse, to learn them, to know them, and to serve them. I dare you to ask God to come into the the garden of your marriage and to make it beautiful and make it what it's supposed to be, what he wants it to be. Invite him into every part of it. And if you need to, Pray for your spouse and begin to love them and remove all restrictions, forgetting what's behind and moving forward towards the mark. And so you have homework from this Bible study. May God give every one of us the ability to see our marriages as he sees them, to see our own hearts and the hardness and stubbornness of them as they are. May he give us the grace to love another person in the way that he has loved us. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, time together and to look at these things. And I pray, Father, that tonight would be a night that we receive insight and wisdom that's from above. You said wisdom from above is pure and peaceable. It's easy to be received. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's without hypocrisy. And it sows the fruit of righteousness in those who hear it and the fruit of peace. And so, Lord, we ask you, Jesus, to speak to each one of us. We pray for the marriages that are represented here, that there would be... uh, um, a blessing upon each one of our households. We pray for those that tonight, Lord, are at odds with their spouse, where perhaps there is bitterness and a shutting down and a cycle of resentment. Father, that you would give them the, the ability, Lord Jesus, to sit before you and that you would be their mediator and their counselor. And Father, if there's anyone here tonight that is secretly hurting because of issues, Lord, that they dare not even speak of, not even to their spouse. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would be the healer, the physician, and the counselor that could lift away burdens, to cleanse what's defiled, and to heal what's broken. Lord, we look to you as the, as the Lord of our lives and of our marriages and of our homes. 
We so desire, Lord, that things be bound up and set in their right place. We so desire your blessing to be upon our children and upon all that we have and all that we are. So teach us, Lord, to walk in your ways and soften our hearts that we might love as we've been loved. So give us power, Lord, where we're powerless. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.